Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Anybody here for the first time? Never been before? Oh, return customers. Welcome to anybody joining for the first time on Zoom. I'd like to begin by asking you to talk to each other about uh, something in order to connect. One of the core tenets of Buddhism is to develop uh, connections and friendships and relationships with other practitioners to take refuge in the Sangha. The Sangha is the community. We have to know each other and meet each other in order to do that. Tonight I'm going to, um, in some ways I'm going to talk about maladaptive strategies. And so I'd like for the topic for the small group to be for you, think about a moment What's something that you do that gives you temporary relief, but actually causes you harm in the long run? Right? It's that strategy that's like, well, it feels really good when I do it. But I know it's creating negative karma for me because I'm lying or stealing or cheating. And I love lying and stealing and cheating. It feels so good. But I know that in the long run, it's an unhealthy behavior or so many of us uh, have crossed that line into addiction and that experience of, uh, yeah, getting loaded feels great. Heroin is delicious. But in the long run, it destroys my fucking life <laughs> and is not, uh, an, you know, it's not a healthy strategy to deal with my pain. It's maladaptive. It's uh, dysfunctional. It's unhealthy way to cope. So can you think of some in ways in your life that some things that you do that feel good, but you know aren't really good for you? They're either creating some negative karma or causing you some, even health-wise, even like some of the stuff we eat, like I, when I, you know, emotional eating, you know, like I'm sad and then I eat a gallon of ice cream and it was like, it feels good, like for the first half a gallon. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever it is and then it feels terrible and i you know and i know it's you know so such an unhealthy behavior that i get into emotional eating um or lying or stealing or cheating or getting loaded or and not that you know not that everybody that drinks is an alcoholic and it's a unhealthy behavior there are people who are able to have a drink and it's not necessarily the worst thing that they do or in their lives. Um, does it make sense? I'm going to talk about that tonight and some other things. We just got back, a group from Against the Stream just got back from a trip to Asia. Jeff was subbing. Jeff and Emily were down here in Los Angeles. Thank you, Jeff, for covering the last couple of weeks while I was gone and happy to be back. Glad to see everybody. But 
part of the time we were at a monastery and one of the the abbot the acting abbot of this monastery gave us a talk one night about some teachings from the buddha and i think you know he was like oh you're a bunch of recovering drug addicts so he gave us the sort of uh, some some of the teachings that um he thought were uh, applicable to us you know junkie recovering drug addict buddhists and they were quite good and i wanted to reflect on them a little bit tonight and and one of them was uh, you know the buddha said you know how often are we doing something that feels good but that is actually causing us harm that, that repetitive craving that we all have that's not just drug addicts everyone has the repetitive craving for pleasure but how many of the pleasures that we're craving and satisfying are not actually leading to the happiness we're seeking at all so um talk about that in your small groups and you only have a minute or so each couple minutes find two or three people that you don't know ideally and at home i'll throw you into these breakout rooms okay we're back we are back So I'll offer some meditation instructions, and uh, then we'll have some discussion about our dysfunctional relationship to pleasant activities. Find a way to sit that's upright, relaxed. Make any adjustments necessary to your posture so that you feel like you're sitting in a way that is sustainable. You'd be able to maintain relative stillness of your body knowing that part of sitting meditation is learning to tolerate discomfort we find a way to sit that we can sustain even if it becomes uncomfortable at some point it's helpful to begin by Releasing any unnecessary tension in the face, in the shoulders, the trunk of the body, the belly. Imagine the skeleton sitting here, upright, vertebrae stacked, and the body hanging loosely around the upright skeletal form. Releasing the tension in the muscles. And as we establish mindfulness, our core practice, present time, non-judgmental awareness, doing so with an intentional attitude of kindness, of friendliness. of metta, the Buddha's term for unconditional friendliness or loving kindness towards ourselves so that meditation is an act of kindness with an attitude of friendliness. All of the qualities of a good friend towards yourself, patient and kind, 
tolerating, tolerant, encouraging, accepting. Having established awareness, present time awareness, knowing that there's a body sitting with lungs that breathe, a heart that beats, the sense doors that perceive sound, sight, smell, taste, a mind that thinks and feels. Choosing to place our attention on the sensations that the breath creates. The Buddha's introductory meditation instruction. He said, bring your awareness, your mindfulness to the breath. Let everything else recede to the background. Bring to the foreground of our awareness the sensations of the breath. Breathing in, know that you're breathing in. Breathing out, know that you're breathing out. Sometimes in the early or stages of meditation, it's even useful to note, to say silently in your mind, breathing in, label it, breathing out. So you can track the experience, acknowledging that that's what you're paying attention to right now, the breath. Breathing in, breathing out. In this way, we're learning to disengage from the contents of our thinking mind, the plans, the memories, the future, the past. We use the breath as an anchor to the present, here, now, sitting, awareness receiving the breath.
And of course, the attention doesn't stay with the breath. It gets drawn into sounds that lead to memories, plans. The attention gets drawn back into worrying, fantasizing, reminiscing. We're not trying to stop the mind from thinking. But this part of the practice is to ignore the mind, let those thoughts be in the background, keep coming back to the breath over and over, disengage from the thinking mind. Come back to the feeling body, mindfulness of the body, sitting, breathing.
noticing how even the topic of maladaptive strategies, how often we're trying to think our way through something, trying to figure it out in our mind. One of the core understandings of our practice is that we're not going to be able to end suffering by intellectually understanding, by thinking it all through, but that it's wisdom, insight that happens through changing our relationship to the mind, breaking our identification, our addiction to thinking, Even right here, as we're sitting, bringing awareness to the breath, we can see that craving to think about the future, to worry, to plan, to fantasize, to rehash the past, resent or reminisce. There's also a somewhat maladaptive strategy for the true happiness, wisdom, liberation that we seek. We're not going to find it by perseverating about it. But through this mindful investigation, present time, kind awareness, we may find liberation, freedom. We may learn to let go. Coming back to the breath, the body, the present, over and over as an act of kindness. Disengaging from the contents of the thinking mind.
you're new to this technique, this practice, keep using the breath as the primary object of awareness, breathing in, know that you're breathing in, breathing out. Simple concentration on the breath. The Buddha's instructions encourage us to expand, to begin to include our whole body. Becoming aware that this body is the four elements. The air element with each breath, experience, temperature of the body. Warmth, coolness, the earth element, the solidity that you feel in the contact with your seat. And that the majority, almost 80% of this body is actually water. And the way that we know the body, the world, is through the sense doors, bringing mindfulness to sound, smell, taste, sensation, emotion, as well as thought. All experienced in this body, mind, process. The arising and passing of sound known by awareness. Smell and taste, images, thoughts and feelings. Arising and passing, changing. Shifting from ignoring the mind to including thoughts. But being more interested in the process of how thoughts are impermanent, arising, proliferating, passing. The image sometimes used is imagining that your thoughts are like bubbles, thought bubbles. And awareness, the mind is aware, spacious, open. Those bubbles are passing through an empty space that you're observing. There's a plan, there's a worry, there's a fantasy. There's a memory, a resentment, a fear. 
rising and passing through awareness. When your experience, whether it's physical, emotional, or mental, is obviously unpleasant, painful sensations or thoughts or emotions, acknowledge this is unpleasant, this sensation. Investigate, turn towards the pain. Check out your relationship to discomfort, the aversion, anger, or fear that we often meet our pain with. The craving to be comfortable, to be experiencing pleasant emotions or sensations, thoughts. or when the thoughts are pleasant or the sensations, emotions, sense door, phenomena is pleasant, check out the relationship to pleasure, the tendency towards clinging, attachment, wanting more pleasure, wanting the pleasure to come and to stay forever.
I'm still a little bit um, out of it from jet lag. I thought I was getting over it. But then I think I made the mistake of um, taking a nap this afternoon and now I'm fucked <laughs> a little bit. Um, start by reflecting a little bit on this um, trip that there was 35 people from against the stream, including me and my wife, Lily, and that spent 10 days together in Thailand and um, on a bus um, taking us from place to place that the air conditioning didn't work very well. Uh, apparently it worked better in the front than in the back. And, um, and, I, and I tried to frame it for everyone uh, that came on this trip with us that the whole, you know, I mean, I, it was the first time I'd done a trip like this. I've been teaching meditation retreats and classes for a very long time, over 20 years. Um, but I'd never taken a group um, on a tour on a, uh, you know, like I, you know, come to the retreat and I'll teach you the meditation technique and retreat, but actually saying like, I'll take you on this trip and we'll go here and then we'll go there. And I'm, you know, part meditation teacher, part tour guide organizer. Um, but with the frame of, uh, and I, I believe this, it's, it's true that our practice, our, our, our Dharma practice, our meditation practice uh, is every aspect of our life. It's not just, are you good at sitting still? Are you good at being mindful of your breath? Uh, as you know from probably your awareness of the Eightfold Path, it addresses every aspect of our life and even the mindfulness teachings. The, you know, the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness say, you know, take a, take a seat and then become aware of your breath and your body and the feeling tones, what's pleasant, what's unpleasant. Become aware of your mind and your emotions. And then it says, now become aware of all of the activities of your life, bringing this present time, non-judgmental, kind, investigative awareness into every activity uh, in the Eightfold Path, into how you write speech and write action and livelihood and sexuality and every aspect of our life included in how we're meant to apply what we call the Dharma, the, the, the practice. So going on this trip and, and um, you know, having experiences of, you know, it being hot and being jet lagged and, you know, it's a 16 hour time difference. And it's, um, you, it's a, a day forward uh, from us. And, and it was quite hot as we got there and, and being, being there in this bus and then traveling our first day was, in this nice hotel and then the second day was like traveling around these ruins and um it was quite hot and humid and and just you know being kind of tourists buddhist tourists walking around uh in the humidity and checking out these beautiful ancient buddhist ruins and um and that being our meditation practice being there seeing hearing smelling tasting feeling and being living in community, being with Sangha. Uh, you know, I talk a lot about refuge and Sangha on a weekly class like this. You get to talk to each other a little bit. 
but actually living with a group of people with all 35 personalities and preferences and aversions and you know um here you can be on your best behavior for an hour and a half <laughs> or even if you come to a meditation retreat it's much easier when everyone's in silence sure i can live with all these people if they don't talk to me and i don't have to talk to them except for, for a little bit at the beginning and at the end but this was it really felt like uh, like an engagement of the Dharma practice, like, okay, we're really doing this. How are we going to speak to each other? How are we going to be in the bus? How are we going to be, you know, getting on the bus, getting off the bus, stopping at 7-Eleven, uh, all in a, in a practice of, of mindfulness uh, as much as we can. And, and uh, the trip went in and out of... Um, what I think most people experienced as unpleasant. There was a whole bunch of unpleasantness. And I warned everyone, I said, if you come on this trip, you're signing up for some austerity and some difficulty. We spent um, two and a half, almost three days at a Buddhist monastery where um, you eat one meal a day. You eat at 9 a.m. and that's it. And uh, no snacking and no... Uh, cheating although i heard some people might have but um the monks at the monastery were like this is how we live come see how we live uh and you know if you don't want to of course you can leave there's a 7-eleven down the street you can um but i was really encouraging everybody like let's just do it's okay to be hungry it's it's actually important to learn to be hungry and not satisfy that and you'll, you'll get enough calories at your 9 a.m meal to survive you won't die. You'll just be hungry. It's okay. And the um, and sleeping on really uncomfortable. Like I'd say, like half of the retreat at the monastery, and then we went to this retreat center. And this retreat center was beautiful, but the beds were really uncomfortable. And the monastery, there was no beds. It was like little pads. You know, and I told everybody, like, bring a camping pad. You'll be happier on one of those bullshit camping pads than um, on the you know, straw mat that they're going to give you to sleep on. And so there was quite a, a bit of opportunity in this trip to see your our relationship to unpleasantness. And uh, hopefully, to, and, and in the monastery, it's there's it's such a, um, you know, these, this was all men, male monastics, these guys, uh, one of one of the senior monks that was with us a little bit has been uh, in this tradition for 50 years, uh, a monk for 50 years, um, hasn't had dinner in 50 years. It's one of their precepts to not sleep in a comfortable bed. It's very intentional to not sleep in a comfortable bed. Uh, to, he's been celibate, hasn't had any intentional sexual activity, no masturbation, no sexuality at all for 50 years they take a vow of celibacy a vow of simplicity the lineage um, from ajahn cha one of ajahn cha's core simple teachings was um, eat little sleep little talk little and to just live a life of renunciation and simplicity and of finding joy and finding freedom that's not based in sense pleasures, that's based in wisdom, that's based in non-attachment, that's based in compassion. Uh, 
this monk, this elder monk, um, 50 years in, one of the most senior monks in this tradition, when he gave us a Dharma talk and we were gathered and we're sitting on marble floor with you know almost no cushions. They're like, yeah, just go sit on the hard marble floor. And you know, luckily they were being nice to us. But you know, sometimes you're just like stuck on this marble floor, no chairs, no cushions for hours. Like they didn't really do that to us, but it's it's part of of the thing of like just be uncomfortable. But this man who spending his whole life kind of practicing this austerity and renunciation, and when he gave us a Dharma talk, he said, and I'll do another, I'll do a meditation on this in the future, but I'll just give you a, a taste of it. Uh, what the kind of, he was so, so beautiful, so kind, so kind of bright, so happy. Um, and you can't tell because a lot of times the, the monks are quite um, composed and you look at them and they're, they're not looking at you and they're quite like, they look so fucking spiritual <laughs> until you get them talking to you. And then they're like making jokes and they're like, so you know happy to see you. And, um, and he said to, in, in response to a question that one of the students asked, he said, you know, Probably loving kindness is, you know, one of the most important qualities that we can develop. And rather than giving some esoteric uh, or even really traditional meditation instruction, he said to her, he said, in your meditation, just say to yourself over and over, I love you. I have always loved you. I will always love you. You know, 50 years as a monk, and he's just giving us this really simple, learn to love yourself. You know, you don't need dinner. You don't need comfort. You don't need, uh, you know, to continue chasing pleasure and satisfying your cravings. You just need to learn to love yourself. And it's so, it's so powerful. And we use that in the practice and in the retreat. And to say it as metta to yourself, I have always loved you and see what your mind does with that. Because there's that part of us where it's true. There's a part of you, a wise part of you, even though you might think I fucking hate myself and I have low self-esteem and I feel unworthy and all of that that's true for some of us some of the time or all of us some of the time, some of us more often, of connecting with that part of that wise part of your heart, of your mind that has always loved you, that has never forgotten your worth. And then that commitment, I will always love you. And how beautiful that is of saying, like, I'm not going to abandon or betray. I, I'm in and, toward, and not some, to some external, not to some relationship, not to something else, but as an attitude towards ourselves. And I don't know if it makes sense to you if I'm explaining it in the right way, but it was so it was a very powerful part of this trip to um, see that the outcome of this simplicity and this austerity and this renunciation of living this life of celibacy and, you know, hunger and <laughs> discomfort. What it led this guy to was a very loving heart, a loving attitude. He learned to love himself. And his core teaching to us was learn to love yourself, not to love pleasure, not to love comfort, not to love easy, you know, but to 
to be able to be uncomfortable in love, to be able to be hungry and, uh, you know, with a loving, friendly, compassionate way of being. So it was uh, a powerful takeaway from me, for me. And then, so we, then we ended this trip in this five-star luxury resort in Thailand on the, um, right on the river, this, you know, high-rise views of the whole city. And so it, it was this really interesting, and it was totally how I lived my life. And it's, I, I think it's how I try to teach and of that going in and out of simple renunciation, being able to be, you know, even meditation, being able to sit here and be uncomfortable, but then also going and, um, you know, getting into a comfortable bed later and, you know, living a life where uh, the ability, and I've said this a lot of times in my teaching, uh, my sense for us as householders, in order to really be able to engage with the sense pleasures, the appropriate ones, we have to be able to, to be able to engage in a healthy way, we have to be able to not need them not be addicted to them. And this trip, which was half of it uncomfortable, half of it, and some people even said to me, I've never been, I've never had this much opulence in my life. <laughs> you know, like I've never been in a five-star uh, resort like this. Um, and being able to enjoy that too. And actually, as some people on the trip actually probably found the... Uh, indulgence more difficult than the renunciation and, and this is an interesting question for all of us and i and i when one young man uh, was saying something like that i could remember when i was in my 20s and i almost 30 years ago when i went to thailand the first time and i would have been so fucking uncomfortable in a five star resort and thinking like this is not the dharma the Dharma is sleeping on the concrete floor. That's the real Dharma. Being comfortable and having these you know, amazing meals and surrounded by air conditioning and, uh, you know, opulence. That's like indulgence. And in my sense, for where I'm at in my life, maybe older, or, um, but that they both are, that there's actually no difference and that what I want to live and what I want to teach and want us to live is can we be just as happy and loving towards ourselves, whether we're comfortable or uncomfortable, whether the food is delicious and there's three meals a day, or it's not so delicious and it's just, you know, protein, just fuel. And it's just uh, without needing it to be delicious all of the time or needing to be comfortable all, all the time or being averse to comfort and indulgence and, oh, I can't, I can't tolerate that kind of sense pleasure. In and out of it not needing either, being able to indulge when that's impro uh, you know, appropriate and being able to renounce when that's appropriate. One of the other talks, oh, the um, 
the abbot, the acting abbot of this monastery, I didn't, somebody else told me this after we had left, but he was so clear. He'd been, a, he's not the guy that had been there for 50 years, but this other monk that had been there for 30 years and was sort of our core guide and contact. And, you know, he was the one that was actually in charge at the monastery. And, and he gave us a bunch of wonderful teachings. One of the teachings that he gave us was what I want to talk about for the rest of tonight around um, this tendency to uh, indulge in, in short-term gratification, which is actually leading to our long-term harm. It's actually hurting us. But it turned out that, and I, I just thought that he was such a good teacher and clear. And I'm, as, a, as a teacher and as a long-term student of Buddhism, I'm often very critical of teachers. You know, that one where you're sort of in your head going like, why the fuck are they saying that? And I usually feel that way about Buddhist teachers. And I felt that way about him once. But most of the time, <laughs> I was like, this guy's clear and, you know, uh, and wise. And... <laughs> And then it turned out this guy's been a monk for 30 years. I don't know if this means is meaningful to everyone, but to me, it was very interesting and, and meaningful. Turned out that he uh, ordained in his 20s, walking away from an inheritance of $5 billion and to become a monk and to renounce it for the rest of his life. And, um, and I, it did make it something about, and I didn't find that out until after I was already kind of in love with him. Um, and, and had quite a lot of respect for him, but it gave me, you know, it sort of shifted that like, oh, wow, this, there's even more wisdom than I thought. And, um, that understanding that material things, money, uh, power, and, you know, all of the suffering that goes along with it, uh, and it is not as powerful as the Dharma in our lives and a life of renunciation and simplicity. And you could just see how happy he was and, and how much contentment. You know, it's hard to tell from the outside, but you can get a sense from people. You don't know what's really going on inside someone's heart and mind, but you can get a sense when you're around somebody for some time. Is this person content? And, um, that was quite powerful teaching and also so similar to the Buddha, the Buddha who walked away from his inheritance of, of a kingdom. And this, this man who said, you know, I, he didn't tell us this, but clearly he, it became clear to him that the happiness that I'm seeking isn't going to be found in money and power and in the material world. I'm seeking for a, an awakening, a liberation that having, you know, Five billion dollars isn't going to be able to buy me, but eating one meal a day and meditating all the time and living this life of celibacy and simplicity has brought him. Well, that was a powerful, powerful teaching. And for us as householders, I don't know where your mind goes with it. I did at one point speak to my wife about. I wonder, like, I wonder about, and I'm sure he's grappled with this. The uh, I don't know, almost ethical responsibility. Like if you had access to $5 billion, I did have the thought of like, I kind of feel like you should take it and give it away, do some good things with it and then become a monk. <laughs> I don't know, you could do some good with, you know, not $5 billion certainly is not gonna solve the problems of our fucked up world. 
but it would help some people. You'd feed some people and you'd educate a bunch of people and could do some good with that kind of money. Anyways, the teaching that he gave me that I want to, that he reminded me of was a teaching I have heard before, but um, from the Buddha, but I hadn't taught it in a while and, and hadn't been thinking about it. And he gave us this teaching from the suttas, from the time of the Buddha, where the Buddha said, you know, often with, uh, uh, this is sort of related to the second noble truth, the cause of all of our human suffering is repetitive craving. He said, but often our craving is like um, a leper. And leprosy, very common in the time of the Buddha, continues to be common in India, happens, I think, even in the United States. Like leprosy is still a thing. It's not gone away, but it's more common, it seems like, in India and maybe in, in ancient India. And he said, uh, you know, sometimes when, when lepers... Um, have lost, um, you know, I think you end up losing your fingers or different parts of your limbs, sometimes parts of your, your face, different parts of your body basically die, become necrotic, and eventually sort of fall off, rot off. You, you lose fingers, you lose your nose, you lose. And so the Buddha was saying, you know, um, it's common for lepers um, because um, like when, if it's their hand or something that has the leprosy, it's so um, itchy, it's so painful. There's something in it that um, uh, it actually, if you um, burn it, it feel, if you burn the flesh, it feels good. And that there was a common thing where lepers were um, putting like their limbs into the fire and burning their flesh because it gave them temporary relief from the sensation that the leprosy was causing in their body. He says, but of course, you're um, actually causing, you know, you're getting temporary relief by putting your hand into the fire and burning that. And, and for a moment, it feels like, oh, it feels so good that I just burned my flesh that is necrotic, but it's also causing damage to it and, and maybe even spreading the leprosy more from kind of burning that part and then it's spreading more. I don't know exactly, but the context, I'm not a, not a, not a doctor. Um, and the Buddha saying, you know, how often are we doing that in, in our lives? Are we sticking our hand in the fire? Are we burning our flesh? Are we doing something that feels pleasant, but that's actually causing us harm? That is a maladaptive strategy that is, um, and I, so I asked you to talk about that in the beginning, and I've been reflecting on how so many different ways for myself. I mean, the biggest example that I can think of in my life is, um, you know, my what became an addiction to drugs and alcohol, and um, how it gave me relief. You know, in in recovery rooms i've even said and and believe that in some ways before drugs and alcohol destroyed my life and got me locked up and you know all of that stuff that happened in my early life um they probably saved my life you know that it was it felt like i was self-medicating and and i was as a child i was suicidal and um when i you know drugs and alcohol i think 
kept me from killing myself. And in that ways, you know, it felt like oh, it was kind of, it worked in some ways uh, until, you know, it was addiction and it was violence and it was crime and it was incarceration. And it was no longer really even working. And I was just kind of sticking my hand in the fire over and over. And, and, um, and the result was more and more misery and more and more suffering. It wasn't even giving me much relief anymore. I mean, smoking pot in elementary school was awesome, but smoking crack, you know, on the streets as a teenager wasn't that awesome. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't even that fun, wasn't, didn't give me much joy, didn't even give me much relief. He's also thinking about, I'd be curious to open this up to you. Like, what are some of the things, places, things that you see in your life? I was thinking also around, around honesty, around seeing the times where I won't, where I've lied in the past, where I won't tell the truth, because it feels like there's more relief in not having to take full responsibility by being honest. But then there's that consequence of, fear of getting caught, maybe the karma of the dishonesty, living with that feeling of uh, I wasn't honest or ethical or um, and that short term fix of like, I'll just exaggerate or minimize or um, or just make some shit up. I'll just lie <laughs> in order to not have to, you know, because it'll be more pleasant to not tell the truth in this situation. But then what's the, the long-term uh, consequence of not being honest? And you got to make amends later. <laughs> if you come around to commitment to honesty and ethics and like, oh shit, I, you know, I could have just told the truth. Now I got to go knock on the door and be like, you know what? I lied. Try to pick up the phone, do the email, whatever it is. Maybe some of the eating behaviors um, around short-term pleasure, but long-term heart disease, <laughs> right? Of kind of like our, our whole culture of fast food and uh, unhealthy eating. Um, it's like, oh, yeah, it tastes good, ice cream or fried food. I love fried food, so delicious, short-term. But then what's it doing to our bodies? What's it doing to our heart? What's it, you know, not, not quite a, going to cut our life short. Um, what were some of the other things that came up for you or areas that you see this uh, tendency towards sticking your necrotic flesh, your leprosy, uh, you know, into the fire, looking for relief from something that isn't going to actually, you know, in the long term, give you relief. It's actually going to cause more harm to you. What were some of the things that came up? Let's open this up for some discussion for the last few minutes. If you're online and you have a something you can raise your hand in the reactions tab at the bottom.
Sure, Martha. There are um, there are some Buddhist teachings that are somewhat aligned with what you're saying. Um, I mean, there's the the Buddhist understanding that there is not a, a solid, separate, continuous self, anatta. The teaching of the understanding that there is that we're not separate from each other, and that um, even this idea of individual um you know this ultimate truth that there isn't an individual ego here that you can't find it you know it's part of our meditative investigation of like well where is the self you know like in your meditation where is the i the me the mind so it's a core part of and then that can lead to, you know that insight can lead to an understanding of the interconnectedness that we're all in and the you know universal condition that we're all in and and I find it tricky because sometimes we need to have a sense of self and an individuation and uh, good boundaries <laughs> with people and, and consequences. And all. sometimes that's what's appropriate. And sometimes just not taking it personal and treating, you know, each other as, uh, you know, all friendly, uh, interconnected beings is, is totally uh, uh, what's appropriate. My sense is we have to be able to step in and out of the relative need for individual boundaries and the ultimate understanding of interconnectedness, if that makes sense. So it's it's there in the teachings on some levels. Nobody wants to admit how they scratch the itch. Cat, please. Yeah. Um, I scratch my itch for sugar, and um, when we were talking at the beginning of class, it was hard for me to even like wrap my mind around because I'm not treating the necrotic flesh, or it doesn't feel like I'm treating necrotic flesh. It feels like I have a really good life, and I really love it, and I'm not trying to... Um, ease the pain the way that I was when I was drinking and drugging. Mm -hmm. But there are some pretty obvious parallels. And yet, I feel like without it, I would be living such an austere life. You know, like, it's like, how much must I renounce, you know? I find, I mean, I'm, I'm with you with, and it's tricky when, especially when we've come from a place of causing a lot of harm to ourselves and then it's, it becomes really quite easy to rationalize well like this isn't that bad yeah. i'm you know i'm not you know i'm not shooting dope 
I'm just freebasing sugar. <laughs> My mainlining, you know. Um, and, you know, something like sugar, which is a highly addictive white powder. Um, some people are able to find balance with it and, and, you know, indulge a little bit here and there. The monks, you know, don't, you know, and that one meal a day, there's all of the rices and the curries and the noodles and the vegetables and the, and then at the end, there's like, you know, a whole table of cookies and cakes and, you know, sweets. And, you know, so they're, they're not avoiding that, but also, you know, one meal a day. And, you know, you can only get, you know, it's not, uh, and, and some of them are, and I think you've heard me say this before, some of the monks take this practice of they put the rice and they put the noodles and they put the curries and the veggies and then they put the cookies on and then they mix it all up <laughs> so that they don't get to really enjoy the cookies <laughs> or they avoid the cookies you know some, some of them do take that practice of saying like i don't not going to indulge in the cookies and um but that practice of saying like, I'm going to mix it up because this food, they have a chant that they do where they say, um, this food is not for pleasure. I'm not eating for the pleasure of this food, which is in itself is like, really? <laughs> I always eat for, I'm always thinking like, what's the most pleasant thing I can eat right now? What do I want right now? You know, eating Thai food, for 10 days like i love thai food but then after a while you're like fucking kind of want a pizza kind of you know <laughs> kind of want something that's not noodles and, and veggies and curry or whatever um part of this and you know like acknowledging okay sugars become a thing for me that i don't feel great about feel like it's a an unhealthy habitual maybe even addictive process we do have to be careful because there is it is okay to have sense pleasures sometimes if you get a little bit too into what the monks are up to or what the you know the renunciation of buddhism and the kind of seeing like oh the repetitive craving and so i should avoid everything pleasant and it's not for us as householders, it's, you know, we're choosing this life of like, it's, can we have balance? And as recovering addicts, sometimes the answer is, I can't. I can't have a little bit of sugar. When I start doing sugar, I start doing it over and over. And it's an addictive process. And I'm healthier in abstinence. And actually, there's nothing wrong with living a life without sugar. There's nothing wrong with living a life without, you know, some of these unhealthy uh, things that become unhealthy for us because we can't find balance with them. Just like we found there's nothing wrong because we used to feel that way about drinking, right? Like, ooh, how could I live my life without drinking? How could I live my life without cocaine? How could I live my life without? And then we realize actually a sober life is fucking amazing. I don't need a drink ever again one day at a time, blah, blah, blah. 
I don't need that in my life. Actually, I have so much joy and so much without that <laughs> intoxicant. Um, and sugar for many becomes a, quite a quite a intense addiction and an intoxicant. And so, and then some people can take it or leave it. There's a lot of power in renunciation. I believe I know it from my own experience. And like I said, being with these monks, like there's a lot of joy that comes out of that life of simplicity. It's hard when you're in the world of the peer pressure of like, come on, have some cake. Like that's like saying, have some heroin to some of us. I can't have some cake. I'll go on a fucking run. I remember the first time I was at a big AA conference. And this woman was speaking, and it was the first time I kind of got a glimpse. And this was a lot, you know, twenty years ago or something. And I got a glimpse into a glimpse into eating disorders. And um, I didn't really know that much about eating disorders. And she was talking about um, how you know she was an alcoholic and she got sober, and then she started eating cake. She said, and then like cake became like my thing. She said, and I was going to the store and getting sheet cakes and eating them all and it just like I became like and and and, I, and bulimic and like I would eat a fucking sheet cake and then I'd throw it up and then I'd have all the shame of that and then I'd eat another sheet cake and then I'd throw it up and I was going on these sheet cake runs eating a whole fucking cake in that you know leprosy like i'm and it's going to give me the short-term pleasure i'm going to it's going to let me avoid my feelings short term which is different than probably i don't think you're doing that um but it can become that and it becomes that sometimes for people and it's it's a real thing uh not everybody can have a piece of cake some people just like a lot of us can't have any drugs or alcohol sometimes we have to have abstinence because it leads to that level of addiction please send back uh, I'm curious to hear about some relating Buddhist teachings around moderation and how people find that. Because obviously what you're just touching on this. For some people, a piece of cake every week is moderation. Yeah. And for some people, abstinence is the moderate point between life and death in some cases. And so I'm curious as to what the teachings say about moderation. So I'm trying to think about the teachings. So let me just tell you what I think, and then let me think about what some of the Buddhists teach. So the, the Buddhist teachings say, you know, renounce five precepts. Um, renounce killing, renounce lying, renounce stealing, practice abstinence around murdering, <laughs> thieving, and lying right that you know not this sort of like hey man like middle path it's okay to murder sometimes <laughs> abstinence around uh sexual misconduct and abstinence around indulgence in any kind of recreational um intoxicants so buddhism you know teaches and so, so for some they're like wait a minute i can't get high at all i'm serious about my meditation practice why does the buddha want to take away my wine you know, why does the Buddha want to take away my bong hits? Why is the Buddha, you know, like, um, and he's just saying like, hey, if you want to be mindful, you want to use this path to free yourself from suffering. If you put stuff into your body that blocks your ability to be mindful, like recreational drugs, alcohol, 
you know, not, it, it's not even about being an addict or an alcoholic. It's just about those things block your ability to be present. It's why they feel so good, right? It's why we like them. Like, oh yeah, I love not being present. Being present makes me feel all of the unpleasantness and anxiety and, and fear of life. Getting high takes it away. So the Buddha says, hey, we got to face all of that total abstinence from lying, stealing, um, killing, sexual misconduct. And he's pretty liberal about sexual misconduct. He's basically just saying, like, consenting adults, don't lie, don't cheat, don't, you know, cause harm intentionally, and don't get high. When it comes to, you know, things that aren't on that list, like sugar, my sense is we have to just do an honest assessment is this creating suffering in my life is it you know is it create is this giving me short-term relief but causing long-term suffering now the thing that i find tricky about this is that we also have to look at um, our conditioning and because uh, sometimes we feel guilty or we feel shame about you know like something like masturbation sometimes you feel like oh because of my religious upbringing when i masturbate i feel shame is that am i causing harm to, am i causing suffering to myself around something that's like natural and normal and can be very healthy to masturbate no you know but because of this cultural religious conditioning i'm experiencing suffering around something because of how i was conditioned to think about it and that's not the same you know following me it's not the same where we're feeling guilty about something that's not harmful that's not even unhealthy you just have some bullshit religious conditioning that has implanted shame to you about your body <laughs> It's not the same as, but, you know, also some people can find moderation in masturbation and some people absolutely cannot. And it becomes porn addiction and it becomes, you know, 17 times in the weekend or in the day or whatever. And actually abstinence is healthier. I can't masturbate in self-love once in a while uh, in a moderate way. I need to not do that because I go, I'm fucking eating sheet cakes again. <laughs> I can't have a piece of cake. I eat a sheet cake. I can't have a drink. I drink a fifth of vodka. I can't masturbate because I'll fucking do it 10 times a day. And, you know, and it'll get in the way of my life. And I become so addicted to the porn that I'm using for masturbation. I have to give it up. But some, you know, so it's, I can't answer it because it's so individual for us we have to look at am i able to find balance with this or am i not and then we have to just have to admit like nope i'm not uh for me abstinence and there's joy in abstinence there can be real joy in it i've often said when it comes to um sexuality uh that what's so even if you have no sex addiction tendencies to break our ideas about sexuality, I think it's a great idea for people to uh, practice celibacy at some point. I've done a few different periods of celibacy in my life, one time for two years in my 20s, and then another time for about six months in my 
forties and, um, and just to, to completely give it up as a practice of abstinence and to just see it's just desire and desire rises and passes just like every impermanent thing and to be able to be comfortable in our own skin without needing an external, you know, relationship, sexuality, or even masturbation. So I, I always feel like it would be quite useful to do that. No problem. And then it's time. So we'll end there. Um, good to see everybody. Happy to be back next, next week. Maybe I'll do the, the loving kindness. I love you. I have always loved you. I will always love you. Kind of following up on these teachings that we received, passing them on to y'all. And what I will end with is um, I, I do need to do end of the year fundraising. Um, tomorrow is, uh, what is it? Giving Tuesday. Right. It was Black Friday, today, Cyber Monday. And then tomorrow in the nonprofit world is you're going to get like, you know, 500 emails from nonprofits tomorrow saying it's Giving Tuesday. Do you have any extra money to support us? Uh, I probably won't send a Giving Tuesday email from Against the Stream. I don't think I ever have. But I need to do um, some fundraising that uh, the nonprofit needs support. So. Class is always done by donation. Against the Stream is always done as a, you know, freely offered uh, uh, service. The retreats, even when we do retreats, we just charge whatever it costs for the retreat. Uh, the one thing uh, during the year that I charge for um, is the New Year's Eve, which is coming up at the end of December. I think it's a Saturday night this year. Um, I ch I'm charging for that as sort of a fundraiser. So uh, one of the ways to both participate in something cool that we're doing here and also support the nonprofit is to register for that. How, are, is it 50 bucks again this year? Yeah. Or do we make, do we lower it? We charge 50 bucks, 50 bucks. So come to New Year's Eve, give $50 to against the stream. And also we'll do the precepts. We'll do the, uh, refuges, we'll set our intentions, we do a candle lighting ceremony. Um, if you really want to be here and you can't afford that 50 bucks, you're welcome to come, just let us know, we will scholarship you. But we do want everybody who can, you know, so it's a one way towards the end of the year to raise a little bit of money for the for the organization. So give whatever you can, and as much as you can to support what we're doing here. And thank you in advance for your generosity. Many goodness that comes from our practice and discussion of the Buddha Dharma be shared outward in all directions with all living beings. May each one of us get as free as possible in this lifetime. And together may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.